Hey everybody, it's video night, it's a Halloween special, we're going to be discussing two Stephen King classics about transformations, men being destroyed, sort of, I don't know what that means. Uh, it's uh, uh, Michael on this end, Mindy's on the other end. Hello. Hi. Um, we're going to be discussing <laughs> Silver Bullet and Thinner. Um, kind of, when we're mapping this out, we realize there's a lot of great double features in the Stephen King verse uh, that you can put together. Besides these, it's uh, you can do Carrie and Firestarter, Dolores Claiborne and Misery, um, Shawshank and Green Mile. I, we were originally going to do Dead Zone and Silver Bullet, but I'm I can't think of anything really to put with Dead Zone right now. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be a Stephen King. You could do Scanners and Dead Zone, which are by you know mind oriented horror. I guess I don't know. We'll mm -hmm. we'll figure it out because you've never seen Dead Zone, correct? No, I haven't. Now, you've seen the TV show, I think. No. Oh, okay. Um, no, I've never seen anything. Uh, so, the, the, the two we settled on at the last minute, I was like, wait, Thinner has a whole, like, you know, body-changing kind of thing that yeah. locks in with uh, Silver Bullet. And so, like, I, I think that's probably... Yeah. Um, for me, the top three or four werewolf movies are kind of like the standard rule that everybody has. The Howling, American Werewolf in London, Silver Bullet, and then it's usually the fourth one. There's a, a mixture. It could be Ginger Snaps, a Bad Moon. Um, there's not a lot of good werewolf movies. You know, most of them are, like, pretty hokey, I guess. Even the, the ones that have been made more recently where they have better technology, they're their story isn't good or something because really the newer ones aren't any better. They're not. I mean, I think ginger snaps is probably one of the better, more recent ones, but that's got nothing to do with the, you know, the technology more. It, it's a good story. Right. Like, cause we talk about, I think we're watching cursed and you looked at it and you're just like, what the hell is going on? They keep mixing really bad CGI with physical effects and it's clear the two wildly they don't melt together at all and you're like either do all cgi or all physical effects yeah i think that that movie is really a shit storm of, of its own that for a lot of reasons yeah <laughs> and it, yeah it has it's sort of a its own its own hot mess so but yeah i mean any of the newer ones i mean there really aren't that many newer ones there's a lot of directed video ones i've been seeing it seems like every time i, I turn around there's something in the best i'll have like kevin sorbo or Casper Van Dien. Oh, sad. Yeah, and I don't want to see a 1.5 million bot. You know, I just, I, these days, it just they feel so compressed. And they're shot on digital, and they're just, I think the only one I've seen lately that was any damn good, uh, well, I can say two. There's one called Late Phases, um, which is a really right. tightly budgeted one about a man who moves into an old folks' home, and he's blind. And hmm. he has to defend himself against this werewolf community. And it's really cool because it uses the almost like Daredevil style like fights because he well he doesn't like kung fu fight them but I mean he uses his extra senses or yeah. whatever to track the werewolves and fight them back. That one's really clever. Uh, Ethan Embry's his son in it, and, and we love Ethan Embry. Um, oh, it looks like they released it under a different name called. A Night of the Wolf. Yeah, I think I think actually that that's a I had it on DVD. I think it is called Late Phases Night of the Werewolf or something like that. When I went 
when I typed in light phases, it brought up Night of the Wolf, and then the picture shows it, it saying late phases. Okay. Well, I'll have to find that sometime because I, you know, how I really like Ethan Embry, and I'll give a a, a werewolf movie a shot. Yeah, you and, never know. And there's another one called Wolves with um, oh crap, he played uh, Havoc in the X Men movies. I'm having an amnesia moment. Okay, so what's the guy who played Aquaman? What the hell's his name? Jason Momoa. Thank you. Jason Momoa is this badass. It's like set um, in the hills, and he's part of this, like, uh, not really a biker gang, but just like this rough gang that lives on the outside of this small town. And uh, he decides he's the alpha wolf, and he's going to take over, and the kid changes, and it it's from the guys that wrote the X-Men, X-Men 1 and X-Men 2, and then uh, Superman Returns, Michael Doherty. And that one... Oh, okay, i at it now. It went straight to video here, but um, over in, I think it was a oh. Canadian film, and it did very well there, and they spent a decent amount of money on it. That's the problem with a lot of werewolf movies. Either it's these big, expensive movies with so much CGI that it takes you out of it, or it's these really, really low-budget ones, and there's just not enough money there to get the idea across Wolves is, I think, the appropriate amount. $20 million to get the action sequences and the transformations. It really works out well, in my opinion. I see. Yeah, so I'll that's, have to take a look at it. That's pretty much it. Other than that, you got like shit like Van Helsing and um, the misbegotten yeah. Wolfman movie with uh, Benicio Del Toro that isn't almost, oh, yeah, it's almost good. It's it's on that verge. Um but in the 80s, the, yeah. the werewolf movie really exploded. We had, like I said, Howling, American Werewolf in London, and all those kind of Howling sequels. Uh, we had werewolves pop up in uh, Monster Squad, Fright Night, uh, Waxworks, and stuff like that. But there's only three that really stand out, like I said, the, the previous two. And then Silver Bullet, to me, um, I think the werewolf looks kind of goofy. It, it's like a werebear. <laughs> yeah but that's not why you but, watch the movie it works for no. so many other reasons yeah no the, I mean you're right it was made in 1985 so I mean it's going to be questionable anyway with it's you know effects but the reason why you this movie is worthwhile is everything else yeah you know the the storyline the actors the the intention the you know the story development like it's really good and I, I think I don't I don't know that it really gets the the attention that it deserves I don't know do people watch this movie I mean because it's been one of my favorites for a long time yeah but well, it was I, a don't, bomb. I don't really know what other people think yeah it was a bomb in the theaters I think it found some life on video most of the people I know uh, have seen it and enjoy it but mind you, most of my oh. friends are movieaholics, and they're just going to discover it anyway. Yes. But I'm talking like the normal average yeah. movie viewer. I don't hear this in the Stephen King great hits list. Yeah. It's a uh, yeah. Looking... I think it's. Okay. I, I think it's also kind of strange how some stories have been of Stephen King's have been told over and over and over and over again, and this one really has never been touched. Yeah, they never even talk about remaking it. Have you read the book, Cycle of the Werewolf? Yes. The art in it by Bernie Wrightson. In my head, that is the perfect werewolf design. They, they touch upon that a bit in uh, The Howling. But I want to see that werewolf. And I think that's my biggest 
problem with it is it, look right there is the design for you and you ignore it yeah yeah i don't know it is really in my opinion um you know one of his best works although i haven't read all of his books and it's you know kind of the novella style right yeah because well it's weird it's, it's a it's a larger it? format it's almost like a graphic novel because of the art and the way the the size design was well, this the, that version that we've read is. I don't. I'm sure there's many different versions of it. No, maybe. Because I think that was a re, uh, release that came out in the like late '90s, maybe that version that we've read. Mm, well, no, I don't remember know if when the original when you were working at the library. Um, I think yeah. I, I think I was working at the time. Someone had donated a ton of Stephen King stuff. And we found that, and it was the first printing. I ended up selling it for a bunch of money. That oh. was the large format with the artwork in it. Oh, okay. You'd know better than I would. Uh, I don't know why. I never know anything better than you do. I'm kind of an idiot. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, you know details, little details better than yeah. I do. So, I I just didn't realize that that's it had come out in that format originally, which is genius in my opinion, but. Anyway, sorry to interrupt. No, 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 you're okay. Um, so I was looking at this, and for the longest time, I was always curious why the director, Dan Atias, never directed another movie. He did a bunch of TV. I think he really? did a bunch of Alias. Never did another movie. And this is interesting. I didn't discover this till much, much later. The original director was yeah. Don Coscarelli, the director of Phantasm and Beastmaster. Oh, I see. He quit. Okay. After a few weeks of production, because they would not get on the same page with the look of the werewolf, Coscarelli and oh. Stephen King said it needed to look like it did in the book, but Dano, uh, Dino De Laurentiis and uh, the oh crap, the guy who did the artwork of uh, the makeup effects, um, damn it, he did ET. Uh, well, I can't remember his name right now, but right, uh, they decided to go in a whole different direction. And they just kept arguing and arguing and arguing, and it was the day to shoot it, and they didn't have it ready yet. And he says, "That's it, I'm done, I'm out." Wow. Yeah, that's it's it's so strange because you kind of have two different directors on this film, and I guess because he bailed, the Directors Guild allowed Daniel, uh, I think it's Atelius, uh, to take the credit for it. Car it's Carlos Rimbaldi. That's it. Carlos Rimbaldi. I oh, finally remembered. Okay. Yeah, um, Carlos was kind of famous for E.T., but also doing the alien uh, makeup effects. Yeah, the, when they who they attribute to the makeup department, Jeff Goodwin, Barbara Page, they don't even mention any of these people. Huh. Costume design, Clifford Capone. I don't see the people that you're referring to, so who knows? Visual effects, Rick Baker. What? That can't be right. That's weird. Um, but let's get down to what, why the movie matters. And I think having yeah. the flashback, when does this movie take place? Because it's clearly ahead by at least a decade, maybe two, when she's, uh, um, Megan follows when character. When she decides is telling the story. Right. Uh, yeah. Although to be fair, I mean, the format isn't. I mean, it isn't necessary for the story for her to tell it the way it is. Why is she telling it years and years later? They don't ever explain it. 
Huh. Yeah, it almost feels you know well, what I mean? well. It's I think it's because I'd seen um, uh, Stand by Me first, and mm. I felt it was like you know how because at the end when he tells the story of what happened to all of them. There was a reason why he was telling the story yes. because uh, Chris had died. Yes. Uh, that's what I felt like was going to happen is that she was going to tell you that her brother had died. So there's no real mm -hmm. rhyme or reason. At least is, I, I can't remember if they said it in the book, but why she's telling the story the way she is, uh, it's it's yeah. unusual. There's no explanation for it. It may be in the book, but I just don't remember why they chose that format. Yeah. Sometimes that's just a, a writing gimmick to... Set, set this tone. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Yeah. But. but, you know, it's funny is how many Stephen King movies are reflections back to the, mm -hmm. the 50s and 60s and stuff like that. I don't think that's when Silver Bullet takes place. It feels... No. It was the longest time I didn't even realize it was set in the past. Like, you know, uh, quite a few years. Because a lot of it looks like 1985. Yes. Um, yes, it feels very 80s. And I think that's why it seems so timeless. I think some of the best horror movies, and Stephen King's like the master of it, by even if it's in the past, it's a universal theme that we can all connect to. And he must have been bullied a lot when he was young. Because you look at that, a lot of his stories, yeah. and it's from abusive families, um, you know, uh, siblings that don't get along. Like in this movie, they don't get along in the beginning, which I think is a really strong choice. In, I don't know if that happened in his real life. Mm -hmm. But having them at odds with each other. But... Corey Haim's character is so sweet that even when he does screw up, it's not intentional. It's not like he's being like one no. of those cliche, uh, mischievous brothers. He's just, uh, it's more about that, that douchebag friend of his that causes a lot of the problems. Yeah, he really does um, go out of his way to try to make things right with her, uh -huh. which I think... She's maybe even a little too hard on him. She is, yeah. It's but she's also going through that phase where, yeah, uh, you know, she's becoming an adult. She's, she's still she's starting into a woman. She she's a grown up. She's a whippersnapper. What is the show? Um, Anna Green Gables. I've seen that too many times for my own good. God, I love her so much. <laughs> yeah. I don't. I don't like the third um, part in World War One though. I, I'm, I don't care about that one. Uh, it's it's hard. Yeah. That one's hard emotionally. Um, yeah, that's the thing. Is like. Even despite that, I, I, I mean, I do feel like their sibling rivalry feels real. Yeah. Feels genuine. They feel like real siblings. Like, they did a really good job of, with that dynamic. That, But that even though they have major conflicts, because they're kids, you know, and who wouldn't? Um, but that, you know, in the end, she, she believes him. She's got his back. And that, you know, when it really matters... They, um, you know, look out for each other. And I really love, I think that's one of the dynamics that I like the most about this story is that nobody else, maybe nobody else will believe them, but they have, they, you know, take care of each other. Yeah, definitely. Especially when she starts to take charge and she's doing the investigation after the first few killings. And then she's doing the, uh, the, the can drive and she's checking yeah. all the neighbors and all the people who could be suspicious. Um, that's probably my favorite part because she almost turns into a Nancy Drew character. Yes, and there are some genuine moments that that, that it's, you know, kind of scary. Yeah. Um, you know the risks the risks that they take to find to find the truth are definitely 80s styled terror. 
Well, yeah, the children in peril is a concept that just now started coming back because of like Stranger Things and eight yeah. mil. Is it eight? No, not eight millimeter. That's a, that's a horrible Nicolas Cage <laughs> snuff film. What's the one? Eight. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but it, it's the one today? that J.J. Uh, Abrams directed, where it's about kids discovering aliens. You know, yeah, that's. Yeah. I think the mid '80s is probably the peak of the the t- uh, teen movie. Because it's like mm-hmm. teens could do anything. You want to fight monsters? You're down for it. You want to go find treasure? Yeah. You want to go get a plane and save your father <laughs> who's being held hostage? Yeah. That's going to happen. <laughs> Super 8. Super 8 is the name of it. Oh, Super 8. Okay. I was, I was up with him far off. No, you were super close. Um, yeah, that's the thing is like so many of the things that happen in 80s movies just would never freaking happen now i mean there would be no stand by me that shit would not happen no it's you know let's go hunt for a dead body just to be curious <laughs> well you yeah know? now it would be it's like you couldn't leak with your phone <laughs> yeah um explorers yeah. yeah you can't you can't get away with anything because you're too, everyone's too connected yeah and that's a good thing and a bad thing yeah right right the, um, yeah, yeah. I just think I think a lot of what changes the movie is the dynamic of crazy Gary Busey. I just the man uh, is. You think he's out of his mind now? Uh, remember, <laughs> oof, when he had um, his mental capacities all together and he had that wild craziness. Um, it's exciting. Him in the '80s was, and obviously early '90s was truly amazing. A lot of fun to watch. I mean, it it made me kind of sad, honestly, because I was just like, oh, remember when he, before he, like, went totally insane and, uh, you know, still maintained his quality acting? I mean, he still was a, he was clearly always, you know, a force, uh, you know, but, but when he still had his senses about him, and he wasn't scary to look at and listen to. <laughs> he was very impressive. Yeah. I really enjoyed him in this movie every time I watch it. And, and, and I just the, I, like I, I really su- the really su- sweet dynamic between him and um, what's the what's his name? You know, Corey Haim's character. Um, the dynamic between them is just very sweet. When pretty much his parents, their parents just kind of ignore them. <laughs> Oh, you mean Marty? Yeah. Um, yes. I yes. kept thinking it was something else, but I was—I almost said Lucas, but that's a totally different movie. That's a whole different movie with him. Thank you. Um, he, yeah, because there's that scene where they're like, "Stop treating him like he's basically dead or a different person. He's just in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. You gotta let him live." Did they explain? And I yeah. forgot what happened to him. Why he ended up in the wheelchair? No. If they did, and if they explain it in the book. I don't remember, but no, not that I know of. They no. don't ever talk about. They don't address it in the the movie because I think it's not it's not that important. It's not. It doesn't change the story. No, that's true. It would be like um, an unnecessary. I think sometimes I think that's what works about Stephen King movies and not the books because sometimes they get caught up in the details. Pet Cemetery, the book, yeah, is impossible. Yeah. It's so big, and I don't need four pages to describe a freaking bathtub. <laughs> Oh, my. Yeah, there's a scene in there that just goes yeah. on so long, and I just got tired of it. So he's like a Tolkien in his description of trees. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean... Like, you're smart. 
you're a good writer, but we don't need that much. Thanks. It's it's funny though how Unc- Uncle Red unintentionally pushes the story forward by just giving him the fireworks in his new wheelchair. He puts him yeah. in danger because of the fireworks, but he also saves his ass because of the new wheelchair, which is what the name comes from, Silver Bullet. Yeah. Yes, and I would like to say also, I do think that they made a huge mistake in the name of the the movie. So what, you think Silver Bullet sounds more like an action movie? I think it just, it's just doesn't give you any indication of what the movie is. Yeah, but if you know horror movies, you know Silver Bullet. Well, you might also think it's about Lone Ranger. I but, guess. But Cycle of the really, Werewolf. I didn't think about that Cycle of the Werewolf also sounds like maybe it's a, a monthly visitor that makes a woman turn into a werewolf. I don't know. Oh, goodness. No, you have a good point. I don't know why I stupidly didn't think about the obvious uh, Silver Bullet part. Duh. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is the movie almost has an anthology feel in a way is that... Well, especially in the book, because each chapter was a different month, and there was a different murder, and he turned to world for one night. And the book still sure. kind of, or the movie still kind of captures that flow of time. Um, mm-hmm. You could do this, I believe, as a miniseries, or maybe a, a limited series, instead of a movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, I think I think one you chapter can... per, or one episode per chapter, it could work. It's like, you know, do that for a season. Yeah, I think so. Or even... Even if you did it, um, I don't remember how long the cycle was. It wasn't a full year, right? It was only like a season. I can't remember. It's It's been 20 years probably since I've read that. Yeah. So, but you could definitely, I mean, they have movies that take place in one day. They have Stranger Things almost always takes place over a one or two day period of time. You can do that. Yeah. Even if it was just a, a season instead of a whole year or whatever. The, um, Absolutely. I think the one, the best part about this is the fact that every action they have is understandable and realistic, which is truly rare in horror movies, because especially during the 80s, when everybody was like, guys, this isn't funny, stop it. And you just keep wandering out, and she's <laughs> like, why do you have your top off? Why are you wandering around in the dark yelling into the shadows? You know, and then they're like, instead of running, they just go, <laughs> and then they get a hatchet in the head. Yeah. I mean, yeah, all, yeah, there's so many of those things are just like, um, none of this makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, in this like, one, they're, need, they're I not. I still want my horror to make sense. Yeah. Their actions are completely believable, whether or not they're, they're uh, fighting for themselves or, you know, moments where, you know, Gary Busey's character, Uncle Red, is you know, it's towards the end of the movie, and he's like, guys, I've been up all night. This is getting boring. I, I think you guys are just yelling at shadows. This isn't going to happen. I get that after hours of frustration, and as an adult, where your, anim- your imagination can sometimes dimish, dim- dimish, diminish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know why I said dimish. I just made up a word. Uh, his actions are believable when he's just like, guys, just go to bed. This is ridiculous. And, you know, and then he... Out of fear, when he finally sees it, because he's not prepared at all mentally for it, um, he freaks out and he, you know, he loses the bullet and everything. Like that the the whole setups of all these things are so stressful and, and and amazing because you know he has to get his tiny little fingers in that grate and get the bullet out, or when he's trapped on the bridge and uh, yeah. he has to yell to that guy mowing his lawn or whatever, 
it everything oh, in yeah, it is there's so much tension. Yeah, but it's not like forced tension where it's just like, oh, let's get a writer right. in here and punch up this scene. It all works so well. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. That's one of the things that I think, you know, I'm not a really big fan of the horror genre. I, I mean, I'll watch some things, but I'm not really a fan of um, super gore. But my bigger issue is this, that I can't handle things that aren't logical. I mean, yes, I understand, you know, fear, the reactions that you would have, you know, things like that, but things that... I don't believe would happen in reality or aren't logical. I just can't stand. And that's, and that happens in most horror movies for whatever reason. And I just, that's why most the reason why I don't watch very many of them. Yeah. You've always been kind of like, well, if you do, you like some of the comedic ones, but you were like, I, there was a time when I was a gore hound where I was watching every horror movie. Mm -hmm. But then as I get older, yeah. I kind of keep going back to, like, the fantastical. I like big monsters. I like huge ideas. But take away all of that. If I don't give a shit about the characters, why do I care if they live or die? Yeah. And so yeah. On, on that hand, Silver Bullet is extremely strong in it. Now, this, the second film, Thinner, I really enjoy it. Oh. And I get where they're mm -hmm going with them but they're not necessarily characters you care about it's more like a tales yes. from the crypt or twilight zone episode where it's bad people kind of getting their comeuppance yeah did i jump too early yeah, if I, I did if i jumped to the no, next no, one it's okay. it's totally fine because i think that we kind of you know talked a, a little bit before we even started talking about the, the first movie so no i think it's totally fine to to move on um I think that, yeah, you don't really care about any of the people, um, but I kind of like just the general concept of uh, the transition and the way that, I mean, his is, is a physical transformation, but it's also a mental one um, where he does, we you kind of see him spiraling mentally. Yeah. Which, which I like. Yeah, I don't really care about any of the characters. Um, I, do, I was a little disappointed that he sort of just ends up, instead of having personal growth, he kind of, he spirals the other way. Yeah. He ends up being, a, he starts out as a kind of a dick, and he ends up in it as a dick still, but for different reasons, different motivation. The, the, um... I forgot to say one thing before we really head into thinner. Uh, I forgot to mention Everett McGill as the werewolf is a fantastic villain, yeah. and, and I loved him later in People Under the Stairs, which is really his tour de force. <laughs> but um, I can't talk about it. <laughs> I'm gonna make you watch that. Um, so yeah, <laughs> thinner is uh, written and directed by Tom Holland, who did Fright Night and Child's Play, amongst other films, and. He's a guy who usually does write very understandable, likable characters. I mean, Peter Vincent is one of the greatest horror characters of all time. Oh, Sympathetic and yeah. broken and, and trying to find redemption. And it, it's kind of funny that he does tackle uh, Thinner because it doesn't seem like his signature. Mm -hmm. But he, I think he had done some episodes of Tales from the Crypt, and I think he got that taste in him, uh, for doing that kind of thing. And in the 90s was kind of the era of... Me, 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 self-absorbed. I mean, it's the era of Seinfeld. And uh, 
So I think it's just about bad people doing bad things and just kind of burying themselves in it. Um, I, I think Robert John Burke's performance in and out of that costume is fantastic. And he's a guy who really never got his due. Uh, most people probably know him as the guy who took no. over for Peter Weller in RoboCop 3. Um, oh. But I just I, the fun thing in watching it is that it is uh, macabre. It is. It feels like yeah. it's out of a, a comic book. And just watching this guy who's not really sinister. He's just kind of a dipshit dope, you know, and just makes his money. Mm-hmm. He seems like... Um, uh, Oh, fuck. What, what is Trump's... Michael Cohen. He seems like a Michael Cohen kind of dope who just goes along for the ride just as long as he's getting paid. He seems like that kind of guy. And then he just fucks up so bad. I still can't believe how dumb they are. She's given him a blowjob. Um, by the way, this is not trying to be mean, but he's a rather large man. And you gotta move shit, I would imagine, to get to the dingus. <laughs> Plus, there's a steering wheel in the way. How did she get her head in there? How did she do it? I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of logical issues with yeah. horror movies. Yeah, and then he, and then he just accidentally hits a woman and uh, gets away with it because he's got ties uh, to the local, you know, the court and the, the the police and stuff like that. And you almost feel for Michael uh, Constantine's character, who plays the old man who, you know, goes up to everybody and says lizard or thinner or whatever and curses them. You kind of feel for him a yeah. while until he goes too far. So everybody in this is toxic and they all get their comeuppance. Yes. It's so funny seeing Carrie Werwer in this. You remember when she was a thing? Sort of. She was in Eight-Legged Freaks, right? Yeah, and Sliders. And I'm, she was a MTV BJ before you and I started watching MTV. She was like during the Polly Shore oh, I era. Don't... I don't think I realized that. Um, I do think it was interesting that, like, the 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 only person who is innocent in this whole story is the daughter, yeah. and she still gets she still gets screwed. Or we don't know for sure, but we they imply yeah. that she gets fucked over too, even though she didn't do anything. So everybody gets screwed, even the innocent person. And I guess that's kind of a, like, look, it's it's a toxic web that not only draws you in, yeah. uh, but also can draw in innocent people. It's more like, a, almost like a morality play. Yeah. Violence breeds violence. It is, he could have made some amends or just dealt with his death, but no, he hires a stupid mobster goon. Wow. Um, uh, what the hell is his name? He's always on The Simpsons. He's in Baby's Day Out. Um, oh, yeah. He was such a cliche. Um Joe uh, Montana, Montana, yeah. Couldn't remember. Um, but he is on eleven in this movie. He's so big and so yes. cartoonish. It all that that's the other thing that made it feel like a Tales from the Crypt episode because it wasn't steeped in reality at all. It's like the polar opposite of Silver Bullet. Yeah. And then I don't know. I was just thinking like the way that they just keep. I do like the world of the gypsy though because I feel like that's something that's not really shown in films very often. Yeah. Did you... Or that they're... What? No, I was just trying to remember. Did you tell me a story when you were in... Uh, you went on some trip in Europe and you ran into somebody who said, just be careful of the gypsies or something like that. Did I imagine that? Oh, yeah. No, it was when I was in Italy. There's a, there's a lot of gypsies in Italy. Were they like this kind of gypsy? Or like a whole different thing? I. 
Um, I'm sure it's a variation of this kind of gypsy, but these are like they they teach the kids how to pick, pickpocket uh-huh. and and stuff like that. So they'll they'll just try to distract you on the street and pick your pockets. So um, <clears throat> this girl I was on, I went on a school trip, and her friend was like stationed in the military in Italy or something. So she came to meet us. For like a day or two, and she taught us how to like uh, cuss at the gypsies in in Italian, and to and and like what to pay attention to and what to be aware of. Huh. Because it's a it's a pretty I think especially in Italy it is a very prevalent thing, and I heard that from my friend who went to Italy like a a, a year or two ago that 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 still is pretty normal. Now, did you see any of them? So do they I actually do they look I, like the cliche of what gypsies look like in movies? No, I mean they were just little kids who were trying to distract tourists. Oh, okay. So I don't know what their like adult people look like. Right. I have no idea. But you always see them really they, they always look the same in movies. If they're trying to be con artists, don't yeah. look like gypsies. <laughs> don't look like normal people. If you want to con people yeah. Because there's a movie um, about 20 years ago, Bill Paxton and Mark Wahlberg called The Traveler, which is about modern-day gypsies. And they just dress like normal, everyday people, but they live off in their own little community, and then they go out during the day to uh, you know, do their cons and come back. That way you can fool them. If you're dressed like you're out of an old Universal Studios werewolf film, it's going to be obvious. I'd, I'd like to believe that... I don't know, I don't know anything about gypsies. I mean, I've... Li- I mean, I saw those little kids in Italy, but that's been, you know, 20 years since I've been in Italy. But I'd like to believe that they're more like the riches version of the gypsies. Yeah. You remember that show? Uh-huh. Uh, where they totally blend. That's the point, isn't it? Yeah, that, that seems more obvious. Instead of looking like your carny circus folk, small hands. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so... I don't know. It's probably total, totally inaccurate, but so many things are because people only want to represent, you know, the cliches and the, you know, the, the outlandish viewpoints of, of things that you don't understand or know much about, like, you know, American Indians and gypsies and, you know, any race that's small and, Unknown. Right. You know, I was just thinking, this is kind of gone on a tangent here, still Stephen King, but I did notice a lot of these movies are not produced by a major studio. When you look at a lot of them, there are these, it's the curse of him being very, very young, and in the 70s, once he started to take off, he sold the rights off to all his stories for, you know, next to nothing, just to make, you know, the bills paid, and, um... The Thinner was done by a studio called Spelling Films, which I believe only did like four or five movies. It's Aaron Spelling's film division. And that and this is one that was kind of bouncing around for a while, but never really lost. But so many of these movies, like they're like Children of the Corn, um, was made by New World, which is a nothing company now. Uh, Dino De Laurentiis produced a ton of these, and he's an Italian filmmaker, and he did some of his own, like Maxim Overdrive, and you know, they tanked and destroyed his studio. But nowadays it still continues, which is so strange, because you would think, especially after It, with it being such a phenomenon that all the big studios would be buying the rights to his stories, 
but you still find like some of his smaller anthology stuff showing up on uh, Netflix. And, uh, you know, we, yeah. we watched what nightmares and dreamscapes was a TV miniseries. A lot of it just, he has so many stories and the rights are just all over the place. It must be hard for him to deal with the fact that a lot of them get fucked up. Well, I mean, isn't it, isn't it the fact that he like, I thought that he would let anybody have the rights to his stories for $1. Yes, but the rule is, the $1 rule is, you cannot sell the movie for a profit. You cannot sell it. It, it can only be done as like a student uh, film or something else. You can never actually make money off it if you're going to buy it for a dollar. That's why you, when you look up yeah. his IMDb page, it's a friggin' nightmare. And they should section off like legit. 300 and, 337 credits. And there's, you know, just absurd amounts that are in, in the works. Yeah, but like 120 of those are actually legit. I see. I understand now. I, I didn't understand the rules to that, but um, and that makes a lot more sense why a lot of them we'll never see or they're, they're garbage <laughs> or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I give credit to them for allowing like students to be have access to it, but to tell you the truth, if I'm if I'm a, a, in in film school, I, I think you would want to create your own story instead of buying someone else's to truly show that you have the skills. Unless you're just a visual director like a Michael Bay, who doesn't care so care so much about story as just wowing you and doing commercial style work. If you want to be legit, mm -hmm. I would think that you would want to create your own thing. But then again, look at Frank Darabont, who's one of the greatest directors out there. And he's basically only done adaptations of Stephen King. I think that in The Majestic is about it for him, film-wise. Why? Why? <laughs> I love him. Yeah. I love and hate him. You know what I mean? Yeah. You think he would go out of his comfort zone, but if it sells, it sells. Yeah. And that's a totally different topic, but I'm still sad that The Majestic doesn't have much respect. It's such a good movie. Yeah. Um... We were just talking about that earlier because anyway, we were talking about comedians who do serious films, and it was like, well, Steve, uh, uh, Jim Carrey just got to do it for a little while, and then people just said, we're done. Yeah, I mean, people keep saying that he is, like, still lost. He's still, like, off his rocker. Do you do you think that's true? I don't know. He's a complicated... Did, he just, did I think, he just get tired of the Hollywood bullshit? Well, I also think a lot of funny people are really damaged. Uh, yeah. there's a darkness in all of them. And yeah. I think sometimes they make the best protagonists outside of comedies because you can sympathize with them. Yeah. I was just curious because I've been, wa I watched the first season of his, you know, newest HBO show or whatever. And uh -huh. I thought it was brilliant, but you know, I don't, I don't think he's lost anything out, you know, his, Except for maybe he's being more true to himself. Right. I don't think he wants to talk out of his that. ass anymore. I think Dumb and Dumber 2 was the coda on that, that he was just tired of it. Yeah. With, um, with, you're, obviously you're the much bigger book person I have, and you've, and you've probably read quadruple the amount of, like, this kind of genre. Have you, do you feel like Stephen King this, is the one that's the most relatable? Because the other big. This kind of genre, this kind of genre horror. Horror? Well, no, just like the darker stories, because I felt like there was a period where you were you reading Dean Koontz, and there's there's a whole world no, of these guys. I've, okay, I've never read I've I've read exactly one Dean Koontz book, and it was the first one. 
whatever in that series. Oh, Odd Thomas. And it was only because Odd Thomas. And yeah, I honestly like the book, the movie better. Okay. The but with these writers, why is it you think Stephen King is so much more accessible, more sort sort of successful than like Clive Barker and Dean Koontz and Peter Straub and guys like that? Um. Well, I t think he tends to write really normal people. His characters are totally normal people who get into bizarre circumstances, you know, out of their control. But the people themselves are totally average, right? Yeah, I would say so for the most part, yeah. I think. Well, even... I don't know. I think Clive Barker is too dark and too gory and too fantasy. He definitely has his following i do but i think you're right i think that his that stephen king's characters are normal flawed boring individuals that are just like us who just stumble upon superly super circumstances basically the ordinary meets the extraordinary and how do they deal with it yes yes i mean because even in thinner but he, he is a normal yeah. blue-collar lawyer who's just working day-to-day -day trying to make his bills. So you kind of get some sort of uh, connect connectivity to him, but watching him spiral down into a complete monster is the yeah. exact opposite of what usually happens in a Stephen King. I mean, maybe The Shining where you watch him to get destroyed, but most of Stephen King's stuff is about, you know, redemption in, in one way or another, especially in, like, Salem's Lot. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I do think sometimes they, sometimes they his characters spiral, but for different reasons, you know? I mean, yeah, like The Shining, he's driven mad by different circumstances, but it's not all that different than, than a really. True. Oh, and an Carrie. External, an external a source pushes him so far and but this, you know, but this is just his own mind, right? Yeah, and, you know, that's funny. I wonder. But people if, can relate to that too. I wonder if he has rage issues or did have rage issues because think about Carrie, about a, a, a mm -hmm. misfit who is pushed to extraordinary circumstances and she snaps. Same for the thing for The Shining mm -hmm. and Firestarter. There must have, he must be really yeah. tapping into this id of his that he wanted to exercise. Mm -hmm but was never able to, so he gets it on his right. Kind of like the way Stan Lee did with The Incredible Hulk. He would have these rage issues, yeah. but he couldn't work them out. I mean, I totally get this. I've had rage problems my whole life. Oh, I do too. I totally get it. I mean, and you know, and you were saying, you know, he must have gotten picked on a lot when he was young because so many of his stories are also, you know, look at it. He was, they were all bullied and... And sometimes they come back. Yeah, oh, yes, yes. So I think that he's working out his own demons and he's got more than one, you know? Yeah, well, it's better that way. You better get it out creative, creatively instead of actually exercising those out in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or you'll go to jail. Yeah, so in my <sighs> opinion, uh, Silver Bullet is quintessential top 80s horror for me. It's one of my favorites. I'm so happy that Scream Factory has uh, licensed the rights and they're going to full-fledged uh, Blu-ray uh, with tons of special features because Paramount always ignored it. I mean, even the print they put out on the DVD Aww. was kind of shitty. Um, and I really hope they have a tribute to Corey Haim. 
I mean, there was a moment where Corey Haim was it. He was the go-to, sensitive, thoughtful guy who could also be funny and charming. And it's just, it still breaks my heart that after years and years of drug abuse, uh, he finally got clean, but then his body was so broken down that he couldn't handle pneumonia when he got it, and he died. And it's just, it's, it's oh, hard to deal yeah. with. When he, when he finally was getting the best of, you know, of his own demons and getting things together, he just, you know, lost that battle. It's really sad because, I mean, to me, as a young man, he had true, true charisma and talent, and he was so talented for such a young person. He was just so good and so likable, and... Um, it is heartbreaking to see like him get destroyed by Hollywood. Yeah. It, uh, but it, yeah. it's, it's really around that era when, uh, I would say probably from firstborn where he really shines as a little brother to about dream, a little dream, probably be like the end of that era. He was just like the guy. I mean, he was on the cover of every single one of those magazines. And I yes, had every single one of those magazines. And I read them. Because I not, loved him. There is no way in the world you can go on eBay now. You might. I can't. I can't go on eBay and go, hey, old issues of uh, Bop, Teen Beat, or Tiger Beat, or whatever it was called. Um, I like to read old issues of that. There's no way I don't look like a pedophile. So I'll just remember the, the joy I had reading them 30 years ago. Oh, okay. This is, you can't order that stuff. This is ridiculous. But um, but I just remember having so much fun reading those. But yeah, he it, it seemed like every kid back then was named Corey or Corin or Corky or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> uh, and Thinner, like I he said, did, it's, it's... I think he did set oh. a trend. You're right. The, uh, the So Thinner, I would say, is not as good, but it is a fun time waster. I just... You gotta treat it more like it's a an anthology episode of like Tales from the Dark Side or something like that, where it's more about bad people just getting what they deserve. Yeah, yeah. I think you just go that one. You go in for the fun. You're just going for the ride, and it's Silver Bullet more. I mean, the I think the whole thing pays off, uh, with the exception of the effects. But the 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 story, the character development, the you know, it's a much more rounded experience. Yeah, and I would but love... both are very much worthwhile. Yeah, and I just want to see them remake it with Bernie Wrightson's art, especially since he's passed. That design of the werewolf, where it's this big, muscular beast that is unbelievably overwhelming, instead of like, oh, it's a tall dude with a bear mask on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Yes, it deserves... It truly deserves to be done again with with the right, much better, you know, makeup and and, and effects. Yeah. It deserves a, it deserves another go around. Plus, there is more to the book that I feel is necessary. You know, flesh it out a little bit. So, you know, instead of a ninety minute movie, I really am in favor of a limited series, like for uh, Netflix, something with money, because I don't want to see this on Shutter where the budget's up. Oh, we're gonna do a whole mini series for two and a half million dollars. Okay, what's the point if it's gonna still look like crap? <laughs> yeah. Um, anything else you want to say before we go? Um, I don't think so. I just again, you know, for different reasons that that they're both 
absolutely worth the second go around, you know? Yeah. And find the books, kids. Read. Um, I Sometimes I believe Stephen King is too much when it comes to, like, his huge books. But there's stuff that he did yeah. is so accessible. I read Green Mile, and it's chopped up into little bits, whatever. So it's easier to get through. I love his um, collection stories. You know, uh, the the Four Seasons. Was it Four Past yeah. Midnight? Uh, the Backman books. Those are a blast. Um, there's one though where I'm gonna, it's. Go ahead. Yeah. What? No, I was just gonna say, in complete honesty, I haven't read that many Stephen King books. I've re- I tend to um, appreciate her his things that are more. Uh, that are not horror, like The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon, uh, yeah, his short story collections, Green Mile. I honestly, those and The Cycle of the Werewolf, that's probably all I've read of his. Yeah, well, did you read Hearts in Atlantis? I feel like you read that one. No. Okay. I just, I think his stuff is too daunting, and I'm just like, I can't read this thousand-page book. <laughs> Maybe I should. I should probably uh, look into a few other things, but they're just, I mean, they're just so profoundly Deep. big and intimidating. Yeah. Um, but don't don't that daunt you, kids. If that's your kind of thing, go to your library, yeah. support your library, and ask them if they don't have the Stephen King books you're looking for. Ask them; they'll they'll order it for you. Yeah, we can find pretty much anything. Trust me, <laughs> I don't like to say I don't. I, I, speaking as a librarian for other libraries, give them a challenge. We want it. Cool. All right, everybody, so check us out on Facebook under Video Night Podcast. And um, anything else you want to say before we go? Mm, Nope, I'm good. Okay. Uh, Bye-bye, kids. See you later.